the escape from Egypt. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realised that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping the great morning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because there are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard about Archelaus, who was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Thank you, Karen. Today's uh, message is the second to last one in our Advent series. Just got next week to go. Amazing, where's the year gone, eh? And we've been looking at these Old Testament prophecies that uh, the Gospel writers say were fulfilled in Jesus. And last week, uh, Sarah took us through the prayer of Simeon, which has many echoes of Isaiah. And uh, we were challenged to consider the extent of our own humility in the light of God's. Will we allow ourselves to be held in God's arms? As he allowed himself to be held in Simeon's arms. Don't you love about God that he never asked of us what he hasn't already done. He, hasn't, he doesn't ask us to go anywhere where he hasn't been already. And this is a, just another example. And there is something, unfortunately, within us that doesn't want to be held by God, I think. And we're going to be confronted a little more about that today. And uh, Sarah also challenged us with the example of Simeon and Anna, who were filled with the Holy Spirit and seeking God's face, even though they were old. Wonderful examples of God's faithfulness to us. And today, uh, we're heading back to Matthew 2. Uh, you might remember that Matthew uh, is one of the gospel writers that constantly refers to Old Testament uh, uh, scripture. And he says that they were fulfilled in Jesus. And we're going to see that there are three main points for us to take away, corresponding to each of the three Old Testament references in our uh, reading today. The first is that Jesus was the only true Israelite. And actually, he was the only true human that ever lived. Perfectly. The second is that the reason why each of us will never be perfect is that we, too, have a little King Herod living in our hearts. It doesn't want to give up the throne. And thirdly, the best way to vacate the throne of our lives 
is to become captivated with Jesus, how he lived his life, why he lived that way. The more we get captivated with the beauty of Christ, the more we will see uh, and desire him to be king of our lives. So let's take a look at the uh, first prophecy. Uh, We pick up the story uh, after the Magi, or the wise men, uh, left, um, and an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream. And he tells Joseph to flee immediately to Egypt and to stay there until I tell you. Don't you love God like that? Just go there until I tell you. How long? Until I tell you. Now it's remarkable, isn't it? God entrusts his son, the saviour of the world, and his entire plan of salvation to an insignificant peasant couple. If it were me, I would have wrestled up a few thousand soldiers and said, guard this little guy, make sure he's going to be okay. But no, all God required was a young couple who would trust him and obey instructions. And those beautiful words, trust and obey. So simple to say, so hard to do. Joseph hears and obeys and he took his wife and child. He left that night uh, and uh, departed for Egypt. And verse 15 says that the time spent in Egypt fulfilled what the prophet Hosea said, which we can read about in Hosea 11 verse 1. So if you would like to turn to page 778, let's have a look at that Old Testament scripture. Page 778, and we're going to read uh, verses 1 to 4. And it says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the hands, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. Now there's something a bit unusual about the scripture, isn't it? Because it's not a prophecy. It's specifically addressing the nation of Israel, right? And, and how they were unfaithful to God. It's not, a, it's not a prophecy. And despite their waywardness, God uses this beautiful language, chords of human kindness and ties of love. And that beautiful uh, last part there, to them I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek. That's such a tender, uh, beautiful image, isn't it? But if this isn't a prophecy, why does Matthew say that Jesus fulfilled it? What's the answer to this conundrum? Matthew is saying something even more remarkable and profound. He's saying that Jesus is the true Israel. He's the perfect Israelite. And if you um, want to read at some point Exodus 19... Uh, we can read about God's desire for the nation of Israel. He said that if they would obey him fully and keep his covenant, then out of all nations they would be his treasured possession, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Only they didn't, did they? They just couldn't do it. The rest of the Old Testament is a litany of failure and just a continual cycle of a new king comes, he's obedient, he is blessed, and then another king comes along, he goes wayward, and they're punished. 
Why couldn't they obey? <clears throat> Let's carry on and find out. <clears throat> so the second prophecy, uh, Jeremiah 31.15. So if you'd like to turn to page 679. 679. <clears throat> Jeremiah 31.15. And it's quite a standalone uh, passage here in Jeremiah. You'll see each, in each, above each section there is, this is what the Lord says. And verse 15 starts, this is what the Lord says. And then the next verse starts, this is what the Lord says. So it's kind of like a standalone um, prophecy here. And so verse 15 says, this is what the Lord says. A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. So what's this prophecy all about? Who was Rachel and where was Rama? <coughs> so in Genesis 35, we, we can read about Rachel. Rachel was the uh, wife of Jacob. You remember, um, Jake, uh, Jacob worked for uh, Laban, his uncle, and he was thinking he was working for seven years. And then uh, Laban pulled a swifty on him and put his elder daughter, Leah, uh, in with uh, Jacob. And so uh, Jacob had to work for another seven years to get Rachel. And the Lord blessed Leah with uh, plenty of children, but uh, Rachel had to endure a long period of childlessness. And uh, she was, uh, there was a lot of friction, a lot of friction between the two, which was a shame. And, in fact, she had such difficulty that um, Rachel actually died in childbirth, uh, giving birth to her second child, Benjamin. And she ended up being buried close to Bethlehem. And Rama is connected with the tomb of Rachel. I'm not exactly sure how, but uh, Rama is connected with Rachel's tomb. And it turns out that Rama was also the place where the Babylonians, remember the Babylonians swept in, conquered uh, Israel, and they took the, the young people from uh, Israel and they processed them at Ramah before they went into captivity in Babylon. So Ramah is the place where the cream of the is Israeli young people were lost to the nation. So it's already, remember last time we, we talked about a prophecy having a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. And then, so the near fulfillment was this... Uh, idea where the Babylonians uh, took the, the young people of Israel and they were taken into captivity. But the far fulfillment that Matthew says uh, was fulfilled by King Herod, uh, killing these uh, baby boys of Bethlehem. And it's way more heartbreaking. The far fulfillment is way more heartbreaking because, at least in the, in the near fulfillment, when the young people got taken to Babylon, eventually uh, some of them and uh, probably their children, were able to return and rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. So they were still alive. But King Herod, uh, those young people that he killed, were lost to the nation of Israel forever. So this uh, is a very dark period of uh, history for Bethlehem. And not much has changed, unfortunately, has it? <coughs> so how does this relate to us? What can we draw from this passage? Tim Keller believes that there's a very significant idea 
that is relevant to us. And he says that King Herod is a metaphor of our lives. And that there's a little King Herod in each of our hearts. Feeling threatened by Jesus, right? That's why King Herod killed the babies. Because his throne was threatened. He was not going to give up his throne to the King of Kings, Jesus. What do you think? Personally, I think he's right. (laughs) Every now and again, I feel my own little King Herod demanding his way, not wanting to vacate the throne of my life. I was battling with some thoughts the other night and it dawned on me gradually that I was dealing with my little King Herod. He was demanding his own way, refusing to surrender, not wanting to do it God's way. And it's not just me. I know that there's uh, one of my workmates, a good friend, uh, I was talking about God with him. And he told me that he wanted to believe. He really wanted to believe. And so I asked him, invited him to give God a month of his life where he could honestly seek the Lord and open himself to the possibility that God was there and to ask God to make himself real to my friend. And I remember he kind of smiled a bit. He was sitting at his computer. He kind of looked up and smiled and then just carried on working. And he never mentioned it again. I think his little King Herod was saying, Ah, no, you don't, mate. He was not going to give an inch to the true king. And perhaps one day he will be open to God, and I'm praying so anyway. But if this idea is true, then no human being is a neutral observer. Even people say, they, people use this term, I'm agnostic or I'm a skeptic. Uh, they're not truly neutral. They're not actually truly open. They're not, uh, they have an inbuilt handbrake, if you like, that's holding them back from God. They don't actually want to give God the throne of their lives. And that's one good thing about going through a period of real um, suffering or addiction or where you get taken to the lowest of the low because you know you can't make it without some help. And so you put up your hand and say, Lord, help me. I'll, I'll take your kingship. And sometimes that's what it takes for us to be humbled, doesn't it? And to accept and to cry out, Lord, save me. Take the throne of my life. I can't do this on my own. That takes humility. And that takes sometimes, that's what it takes for us to be humbled. But it's also true that if you've been walking with the Lord for many years, this will be true of you too. So don't be surprised if your little King Herod resurfaces every now and again. And you get disappointed in yourself. You react and you go, why? What was that about? That's your little King Herod, (laughs) I think. So let's move on to the third prophecy. Now this one is interesting because in contrast to the first two, Matthew says that they were given by the prophet. (coughs) But this third one, Matthew says, uh, this is what the prophets said. It's plural, more than one. And he doesn't give us a reference. And in fact, we can't actually find a reference to a specific prophecy in the Old Testament. 
saying that the Messiah would be a Nazarene. So what does this mean? I think we get an answer to this in John 1.46, where a man called Nathaniel, who would eventually become a follower of Jesus, says when he hears about Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Can anything good come from there? And I had a similar experience at school because uh, I went to St. Paul's Collegiate. But I was living in Narawahia. And I got a similar reaction from my mates at, at high school when they found out that I came from Narawahia. <laughs> Tie heavy. <laughs> yeah, the same thing. Same thing. I remember one time we were starting, a, we were having a relay in, uh, in Narawahia. We, we were going from um, the east side of the river and we were running a relay all the way back to Hamilton. And I, I can never forget one of, one of my mates looking around and saying in apparent disgust, Corby, is this where you come from? <clears throat> so, I think Nazareth was a bit like the Narawahia of Israel. It was the armpit, let's, let's be frank, the armpit of Israel. <clears throat> now, I looked up my Bible dictionary, trying to find out what was wrong with Nazareth. And according to the Bible dictionary, it was because of an unpolished dialect, a lack of culture, and quite possibly a measure of irreligion and moral laxity. So, it's a place that everyone looked down on. And that's why Nathaniel says, Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth? And yet here we are, Jesus is known as Jesus of Nazareth. And God consistently chooses these people and places that the world looks down on to carry out his plans and purposes. And why on earth does he keep doing this? And we saw the reason a couple of sermons ago, so that no one can boast. Nazareth couldn't boast. The Messiah comes from our place because it's the best town in the country. It won best town of Israel five years in a row. No, you can't say that. So it turns out that God has quite a soft spot for people in places that the world considers are not worth bothering with. Can we keep this in mind when we see people in places that maybe bring up a little bit of disgust in us? Remember, God chooses places and people like that. So, let's bring this home to us. So today we've seen in our short passage from Matthew that he has identified three more Old Testament scriptures that were fulfilled in Jesus. Firstly, Jesus was the perfect Israelite who completely fulfilled the requirements of Yahweh to obey and to keep covenant that God gave to Moses. Secondly, the slaughter of the baby boys in Bethlehem by Herod was the ultimate fulfillment of a prophecy that many Israelites would be um, carried off to Babylon. And thirdly, King Herod is a metaphor of that part of us that doesn't actually want Jesus to be king of our lives. <coughs> Finally, Jesus was known as a Nazarene uh, because it was not a badge of honor at the time. He was embracing a place that most Israelites looked down on and scorned. So, 
What implications are there for us today? Firstly, Jesus... I forgot to bump all these up, sorry. The first point, Jesus is not just the perfect Israelite, he's the perfect human. <clears throat> and this is wonderful news indeed for us, because if you're like me, you can see parallels between the church and even in your own life, in the nation of Israel, and how they tried and failed and tried and failed and tried and failed. And we can be easily demoralized by Christians in general when, when we see them mess up. And we can be demoralized by ourselves. So the covenant that God established with Moses was if they obeyed and kept the covenant fully, he would bless them abundantly. They would be blessed in the city, blessed in the country, blessed in whatever they did. And so because Jesus was the perfect human, he should have received all of these blessings. And yet instead of blessing, he received the curses that the law brought down upon those who failed to obey and keep covenant. Instead of a crown of gold and precious stones, he received a crown of thorns. Instead of the adulation of his subjects, he received ridicule and scorn. Instead of a loving embrace from God the Father, he received abandonment. And why did he submit to this horrible and infinitely unjust punishment? So that we, whom he loves dearly, could receive what he deserved, blessing, forgiveness, and a seat at God's table forever. This is the gospel of grace. This is what we remember at Christmas. He got what we deserved so that we could receive what he deserved. And remember that when you're counting yourself out, when you're judging yourself because you say, oh, I don't deserve this, Lord, I fail. Remember, it's not about you and your failure. It's about Christ and his success. His, everything that he deserved, we can receive because we are in him. And secondly, we've seen that the terrible reaction of King Herod is a metaphor of our own lives. Because all of us have this little King Herod that's living and us refusing <clears throat> to give up the throne of our lives. So how do we deal with this little tyrant? <clears throat> this is our third point. We deal with our little King Herod by focusing on the beauty of the true King. When we see how beautiful Jesus is, his humility, let's face it, he was, being, he was willing to be known as a Nazarene despite its reputation. His love, his grace, his patience, his wisdom, his willingness to sacrifice everything for us. How could we not want him to be Lord of our lives? The more we see how amazing Jesus is, the, the more ugly and pathetic our own little King Herod is. And gradually, bit by bit, our little King Herod will decrease and Christ will live in us, will increase. And that's that, that beautiful scripture. It's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. So finally, I pray that this idea that all of us are grappling with our own little King Herod will help us to be gracious to one another. Every time we're on the receiving end of a fellow Christian's little King Herod, can we remember that they are struggling to kick him off the throne of their lives just as we are? And maybe our reaction to their behavior 
might actually be an expression of our own little King Herod too. These little King Herods need to get out of the road and allow Christ to be in us. That's the idea. 1 Peter 4, 8 says, Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. So can we extend grace to one another as we journey on together in our quest to make Jesus the Lord of our lives, the King of kings and the Lord of lords? So let's pray. Lord, thank you that you are the perfect human. You are the only one who could ever completely fulfill the covenant that you gave to Moses. And so, Lord, help us to rest in your righteousness, to receive the gift of being right with God from you and to rest in that. And, Lord, help us to focus on your beauty and your amazing love and your holiness and your perfection and to be captivated with you so you might increase in us and we might decrease. So holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us this day. Amen.